This podcast is the first half of the session about the ethics of innovative therapy for COVID-19. The session is chaired by Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. Our speakers are Dr Joe Briley, Paediatric Intensive Care Specialist from Great Ormond Street, London, Dr Sarah Eilert, Neurologist from Great Ormond Street, and Professor David Archard, Moral Philosopher and Chair of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics in the United Kingdom. It was a privilege to hear from this group who have been working in one of the world's COVID-19 hotspots. It is still worth returning to this session now because the pandemic is not over and we may well have another one. We can learn from this time of extreme stress about relevant ethical principles for normal times, although normal times are never really without stress. Let's listen now to our United Kingdom colleagues speaking on the ethics of innovative therapy for COVID-19. So, folks, we've got with us um, the leaders and the superstars of clinical ethics at Great Ormond Street. And, Joe, I thought we might start by just hearing from you uh, a bit about what's been happening with COVID-19 at your hospital. Obviously, uh, the, the clear thing to talk about is that we've had far uh, more disease in the UK than you had in Australia. Um, something about sensible government and different handling of being an island, I think. But um, So organisational change in our hospital, quite significant. Um, 7% of our workforce were off any one time. And, you know, COVID symptoms, definite COVID, shielding or sick relatives. We had three staff deaths, which was an utter tragedy for us. Um, but we had redeployment of our staff, uh, particularly intensivists and ethicists, to overwhelmed adult ICUs in the North London area. And one person went to Nightingale as well to do some on the floor stuff with a, a brand new setup in a big exhibition centre, which was really a challenge of ventilating adults in a, a place where it had never been done before. Our hospital, I mean, they did a great job in terms of educating the entire Nightingale. That denuded our own hospital a little. But at the same time, um, our elective work went away. Um, Lots of issues in terms of staff support, psychosocial support, well-being hubs. Lots of food and gifts came in very nicely from people. And uh, we can have a debate later on maybe about how clapping is what we do for our nurses rather than give them a pay rise. But that might be a little bit political. Um, the structure, we actually brought in five other children's wards from the North London area into the children's hospital. So as our own work wasn't being done, the highly specialist paediatrics, we bought general paediatrics in five hospitals, which was a challenge, but also worked brilliantly. Um, the children's cancer unit from University College Hospital came over. For those who don't know the way it works in London, that's one of the services GS doesn't have, the teenage cancer unit. But also young adult cancer uh, ICU patients came to the children's ICU. As I say, the other children's hospital, long stayers, also came into our PICU. For any intensivists, you'll know that we love having long stay patients on ICU. It brings challenges with not having long-term relationships and that's really difficult um, a footfall in the institution which i'm sure was the same for you guys uh, in australia uh, really had to change around the hospital with a way into the hospital a way out and the development of pathways and making sure ppe was appropriate was astonishing we actually changed to have a separate picu for screening and covid positive patients um, and we had relative and visitor restrictions very res restrictive at first probably not as compared to other hospitals actually and we're still a little bit more benign in that than some of the other children's centers who still are at one parent uh, restrictions we've leased that a little as, as the disease has, has waned a bit um the other thing that's fantastic is a lot of our clinics and sarah did this much more than i did um 
became Zoom clinics, which is something people have talked about for a long time, but actually worked much better than people thought it would. Um, but no elective work and very little semi-elective work. And that means it's a whole heap of stuff stored up for us. So now as things have eased, we've got a massive backlog of cases. Um, the challenge now of having PPE still on with uh, trying to do a number of cases in the day means that the operating lists and the IR lists and all the other elective services are managing far fewer cases. A lot of their efficiency has gone away and we still have staff shielding. And as you see, we do have peaks and local lockdowns and there is a, a specter of London being locked down in a couple of weeks if the R rate continues to be high and go up. The other issue at the minute, we're only doing symptomatic testing with isolation. So we're not having routine testing, which is something that many people have recommended. So what about the children we've had? Well, the COVID patients we've had, I'll, I'll, some of the data from Alistair Bamford and colleagues uh, looking at the patients we've had, 57 children met the criteria of having COVID, SARS-CoV-2 disease by the 19th of May. 70% were non-Caucasian, a big feature. Uh, mean of nine years of age. Four groups, primary respiratory, then non-specific febrile illnesses and paediatric inflammatory multisystem, temporarily associated with SARS-CoV-2 or MISC, depending on what you call it, that really became a prevalent disease after that initial period of COVID in March. Um, and those groups did present in a chronological fashion. Some of the data, I just, for the sake of have a look at it, this is in the Lancet, it's more for you to have the reference. Our um, IT team have published this in terms of informatics. A bit more data a bit later on showing some of the blood tests and other things. But our, the key thing here is only one child in this period died, and that child probably died uh, with COVID rather than from COVID. So I don't think we had a single death from COVID itself. Um, this child died of other factors, but part of a, a co-infection with COVID as part of a triggering thing. If you look at the sorts of children we got in, and this is important for you guys, I think, um, you can see the presentations. The vulnerable and non-vulnerable were pretty much paired throughout, 50% each. So it wasn't a disease that predominantly affected vulnerable patients. Those that were preordained as vulnerable were on the right, and you see that quite a few cancer patients, random factors, and some severe respiratory conditions, but nothing like the worry we had of a big pandemic with a flu-borne disease attacking most of the kids with chronic lung problems. So that's flying through this. Um, and I think, you know, the organisational change, just to put it in the kind of the context at the time to go back, we're one of only two designated paediatric centres in London. Um, London was certainly the earliest initially worst hit of the regions and full lockdown happened. The overwhelmed adult ICUs were a big problem. Um, and I think that idea that, you know, much of us have fun with Boris, but when a nation has its prime minister going into an ICU, that's a real serious thing. So I think disease has hit the country in a way that um, certainly unprecedented. So that's the background link to COVID at Great Ormond Street. Thanks, Joan. I think that gives just some understanding of what the context uh, is for the, the topic that we're going to discuss now, which is the ethics of innovative therapy. So we'll hand over now to Dave to give us some preliminary uh, background and thoughts about this broad topic of ethics of innovative therapy. Thanks very much, uh, Lynn. I'm going to be speaking as uh, a moral philosopher and I think also trying to provide some brief background of the uh, ethical discussion of um, innovative treatment in the pandemic and therefore sort of lead into what my colleagues will say. So it's a scene setting and I want to do two things, both say something about pandemic ethics and the ethics of uh, innovative treatment. So 
uh, I should say there's a, currently a sort of explosion of funded research in uh, moral philosophy and practical ethics on, on the pandemic, and a lot of interesting work is being done. And one of the big issues is that uh, a pandemic is an emergency, um, and there is thus the issue of whether there is a distinctive and very different set of ethical values that operate in an emergency such as the pandemic. And if you survey the material that's been produced, uh, it seems to me that what has been noticeable as at least the following two relevant features of the way in which uh, there has been normative or ethical discussion of the issues. The first is uh, one that could be summarized as numbers of paramount. So there has been a rather simple-minded reduction of moral analysis to simple quantitative consequentialism. That is a concern with what produces the greatest number and what produces on balance the, the best overall good outcome. So you, you find in all the uh, moral analysis and often in the guidelines, simple-minded assertions that what we should do is strive to produce um, the best uh, balance of benefits over cost or save the most lives. And correspondingly, as a number of people have noted, there's been very little attention paid to other forms of moral analysis and particularly little uh, emphasis given to the issue of rights. And clearly in the paediatric context, that means little attention given to the rights of children. The second relevant uh, feature that I want to draw your attention to is the scope of discussion. It's often said that if you look at the history of bioethics from its early beginnings in the 1960s, 1970s, say in the Georgetown context, what it was very much concerned there were individual bilateral issues that arose from the relationship between a doctor and a patient or a researcher and participant. And very central was the issue of individual consent. And of course, famously or infamously in Georgetown ethics, right in the foreground was individual autonomy. As bioethics developed as a, as a discipline, you found greater emphasis on public health issues and a move to look at questions of how collectively we might act to secure the health of the population. And the actions we might take clearly go beyond medical interventions narrowly construed and they include social policy, um, so one of the huge issues in, in, in the pandemic and what is the measures that have been taken is looking at social measures such as, for instance, isolation, physical distancing. And those aren't traditionally bioethical issues, but they raise very real questions of social justice. So just to take one uh, issue in relationship to children, the absence of good uh, sustained educational provision for children is an ethical issue. And I saw a headline recently from somebody who said, more damage is going to be done to the life chances and health of children by keeping them out of schools than will actually be done by living in a pandemic. And lastly, clearly the scope of the pandemic is global and we need therefore to take account of the possibility of global measures to tackle it. The second form of um, ethical background I wanted to examine is the role of new, innovative, unproven, untested treatments. And the idea that there might be a right to try such a form of treatment. And I think patients and parents may believe that they have a right to try a new treatment. And they may believe that so, especially if it's the last chance they have. And they may uh, appeal to some such thought as, what have we got to lose by trying it? And that may occur in contexts where there's not been sufficient time to conduct uh, research on alternative forms of treatment and secure the appropriate approvals. And the belief in the right to try is often reinforced by evidence of success stories uh, and treatment being used elsewhere, especially abroad. 
And I think we're going to return to this when I debate with Joe, but there is the whole issue of whether there is a right of the child to have or to access innovative treatment. So I want to use here some work that was done by the Nuffield Council on Bioethics in the UK, of which I'm chair, on innovative treatment, which followed a kind of closed session workshop with clinicians and practitioners about their use of such treatment and what we thought the key ethical principles were. In an ideal scenario, the four following uh, features would obtain. The doctors would be satisfied that it was a treatment worth trying. There would be informed patient consent. The alternative treatment would be available and properly funded, and there would be a sharing of outcomes afterwards. In terms of informed consent, and again, I'll return to this in the debate, um, with adults, we have to recognize that there are often very high levels of uncertainty, probabilities, and risks about uh, any treatment. But nevertheless, we're making decisions in what may be life-threatening situations or situations in which the continuation of life is uh, deeply uncertain. Or if we're dealing, say, with uh, parents and very sick children, uh, we're dealing with decisions made where there are very high-value personal outcomes. There are the obvious power dynamics, the differences between those in professional positions and those whom they treat or help. And there is often the problem of misleading or confusing information that might be given to all the parties by the provider of the alternative treatment. There may be disguised conflicts of interest. Is the uh, alternative treatment funded? It's not standard for the NHS to fund, and it can be deeply controversial if it does. There's no guarantee that the manufacturers of the treatment will fund. And we also have to recognize an ethical issue that has come to prominence in recent years, that of crowdfunding. Uh, there are cases where, for instance, parents have very successfully raised huge amounts of money uh, to fund an alternative treatment, say treatment abroad. And that is, it seems to me, ethically deeply problematic because it raises the issue of whether that's an appropriate use of the funds that are gained in those ways. And it also raises questions of inequitable access to those funds. Not particularly relevant, but a growing issue that we've noticed the Nuffield Council drew attention to is actually biohacking, and that is simply patients taking the matters of alternative treatment into their own hands. We would like, ideally, always there to be a shared outcome, and uh, again, we'll come back to it in the debate. Arguably, the outcomes that might be shared from the use of alternative treatment need not be ever as good as a robustly controlled clinical trial. There is indeed often a poor reporting of outcomes, and I can say here, I think without breaking confidence, that at the Nuffield Council workshop, we were deeply shocked by the evidence that clinicians were able to give of their own behaviour, and it was surgeons who were the worst offenders for engaging in alternative experimental treatment without telling anybody. It can mean quite clearly that adverse events are not picked up, and in the UK, there's no publicly accessible national registry of medical devices and medicines. I want to conclude with one important ethical thought. I said that we are making decisions, uh, ethical decisions, within uh, a pandemic, one that is an emergency. And one of the principal issues that's been much discussed is how we make decisions of prioritization, which form of treatment to use, and how we properly allocate scarce resources. There has been, at least in the UK, a plethora of different and often incompatible and conflicting 
guidelines, leaving uh, doctors and clinicians very confused as to what they should do. And there has in particular been an unresolved question, an debated question of the role of age in any agreed principles for prioritizing treatment. Should we prioritize the young over the old? And I have engaged in a debate in the BMJ with Art Kaplan on precisely that issue. But I want to conclude with a cautionary note. Prioritization within a pandemic should not be prioritization only for a pandemic. We need always, and this has been stressed in a number of statements, to recognize health needs beyond the pandemic and not to neglect other treatments and other forms of research. And the worry that's been expressed is that other forms of treatment, treatment not for COVID-19, cancer is the most obvious and central example, have been neglected in the belief that all resources and uh, should be devoted to the treatment of pandemic and that it is the only disease in town. I think that that needs to be corrected. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dave. Um, so some food for thought there already. We will uh, next move to Joe, and Joe's going to talk again briefly about preparing for a pandemic. I think I'm going to talk about how we first started thinking about the pandemic and what our ethics team could do to help the institution and clinicians further afield. And I'm going to touch on one of the questions that's just come up, which is a really good one about um, the problems caused to younger people to uh, look after older people and you know try and save the lives of people with many comorbidities. It's a real hot issue. Um, our team really, when Wednesday 11th of March came and the WHO declared a COVID-19 pandemic, we really thought long and hard how we best serve the Institute. I guess our initial thoughts, I'm going to divide this into prelude, our plans, uh, warning and organisational readiness, hot activity and recovery. Um, the real thing we thought, we've been involved with Ebola planning and certainly some of the thoughts about um, H1N1 influenza and a lot of the preparation in the UK and around the world was for an airborne similar virus to flu that would cause a pandemic. So people weren't specifically prepared for what has transpired. Um, I, as I say, some of that work we've done, and this is one of these moments in, in your career that's wonderful. We had a paper submitted last June to The Lancet about we're not ready for the next pandemic, which is completely, you know, wonderful. And I've been trying to bet on horse racing ever since, and it's never come off. But um, we finally got that submitted, saying we're really worried about our complex paediatric population and how they would fare in a pandemic, because that has changed massively in the last 10 years. So we have increased vulnerable children, lots more children with chronic lung disease, immunosuppressed children, more aggressive oncology, and lots of children living on um, medical devices at home. Fragile children with palliative care needs and many children with rare diseases getting treatment that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago when the last pandemic faced us. So SMA, ventilation. So we had big concerns that we hadn't thought through this ethically or practically. Um, our first thoughts that this was going to be something more than a, a slight you know noise from China about some illness was when the Italian guys were really hit hard with this um, and they had very very early early overwhelming of their healthcare systems and I think we thought well hey it happened in Italy it's going to happen with us there's no difference really in healthcare systems um, and geography so we abandoned our clinical ethics committees the entire nation was sent on to zoom from face-to-face -face meetings as even early plans to socially distance came in 
And then the hard social distancing really meant we had to adapt rapidly. Um, we had weekly leads meetings with Zoom, which we've done ever since this set up. Our ethics leads look at the four areas of our ethics team practice from um, case reviews, Sarah does, education, training, research and uh, staff support. Um, we also moved to have a regional bioethics support group for children and young people and their professional teams in the London area together with colleagues from King's, the Evelina, St Mary's. Um, we also knew that there was going to be a plan to have new treatments here that hadn't really been tested in this disease. Of course, that's a necessity. So we worked long and hard with our drugs and therapeutic committee and ID team. And we looked at consent processes and how we would think about supporting treatments. I'm going to just undermine my own arguments in a minute about not using uh, innovative treatment because we did. Um, we helped with the RCPCH ethics documents and we developed our own collaborative paediatric ethics framework because Dave says there was a bit of a plethora or a tsunami of ethics documents and this was really for our institution. Uh, I think our main focus is on being kind to each other which uh, transpired to be very very important. Hot activity, I'm gonna, Sarah's really going to talk about this um, so I'll leave that for her. Um, education, we ran EAP, sorry European Academy of Paediatrics, our European ICU Society our national PICS group, education sessions on the ethics of pandemics and thinking through that and also part of a collaboration with Boston Children's um, going forward through this. The other part was staff support. You can see our moral distress cards that Anne McNiven, one of our colleagues who works really hard in this area, tried to get in terms of supporting staff in the hospital who may be going through difficult times with personal bereavement and illness, but also those staff who applied to adult intensive care where it was a very different world in terms of no relatives coming in, massive numbers of very sick patients and very full on sessions, very different than uh, how, how ICU is normally practiced in our, our settings. Um, we also looked at organisational support outside the institution. So we helped with South London Adult Community Ethics Committee set up. The UK is, is fairly behind certainly the US and probably Australia in terms of the setup of ethics support to uh, every healthcare institution. Um, Anne is one of the members of the UK Clinical Ethics Network, which is our patron organization, if you like, of ethics uh, support in hospitals. But some trusts still don't have ethics support at all available. We helped some trusts set that up and also helped other kind of larger children's centers optimize how they would look at pediatric case review with a couple of um, Zoom calls to help them sort of think through how we do things. So there was a pressure to try and get ethics support happening, but not really a great structure to make that happen in the UK, I would argue. We certainly had another role that's very important. We had lots of concern from our, our community groups, particularly children with disabilities, who were very worried about a draconian PIC admission criteria coming in. And that the press was full of this, that, you know, ventilators would be rationed. You wouldn't get a ventilator if you were over 80, which probably was true, actually. But also parents hearing that all well, their children wouldn't get a ventilator when many children will have very many ICU admissions now. The world has changed that way. And we reassured them that there was no change in our admission criteria at, at present. We can't say that will always be the case. But that nothing was changed in terms of their rights of their child to have a ventilator there's definitely no to any frank utilitarianism and yes to the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. So to reassure community groups is quite a big role for us. Uh, research, well, we have tried to get some of this money that's sloshing around that Dave keeps talking about. And whilst Dave gets it, we don't get it. Is that right? <laughs> we certainly provided some advice about research as well. Um, 
we have had quite a lot of research on the institution from uh, immunizations for staff. So I've got my COVID booster on the left I've just had yesterday. Um, but also we looked at a big project about taking bloods from staff and what consent was needed and whether that was research and doing COVID surface contamination stuff. We also did some work with our young people's forum um, looking at their views of COVID and lockdown. And we've just had that published in archives yesterday. Uh, which took quite some time to tidy up. And some of that was based on a blog and then a paper in uh, the Journal of Medical Ethics that Vic and I did. Vic Larch is one of our kind of founding fathers of ethics in, in um, the UK. Um, children of COVID, Porn's Pathfinders Partners. What is the role of children in society coming back to uh, schools reopening and all the sort of stuff? We also did quite a good webinar, I think, on the role of faith. So I'll show you the kids. Here's our, I do like this. This is uh, some old people and some young people who are awake and alert. Uh, Jim R. Chaplin, it's not a very good shot of him at the top right there, but that was quite interesting. And that was kind of a webinar, thinking about young people and listening to them and hearing their views about what's happening. And this was really in the middle of lockdown. Um, and here's our more austere uh, religious group. That was a fantastic seminar with the opportunity to learn about the role of faith in society's emergence. So our last recovery, and this is to kind of address some of the things we've thought long and hard about, and I think some of the, uh, the questions are coming to this on the, on the, uh, the message thing. Um, children's issues, the psychosocial effects of lockdown, and, and young people, not just children, on education, university, how that works, mental health, we've got data showing suicides have increased, the effects of seeing a mortality rate in your country of thousands of people dying every day on young children. How do you protect them from seeing that sort of thing? and how that affects even the security of, of young children, maybe even very young children, hearing these sort of very difficult things. And of course, bereavement in their own families. We've certainly seen some suggestion of peaks in domestic and child abuse, non accidental injury. And of course, the big things for us, poverty, recession, our economy is gonna tank. I expect everyone's economies are gonna have a really tough time from this. And of course, what does badly in a recession well, it's children, children's issues, children's health care, children's social care. These are things that are big ethical issues for us. And so really challenging period. I'll remind you of the Birkenhead drill. I keep going on about it. Dave doesn't like it, but I don't mind. Uh, Kipling. Kipling's not allowed to be talked about anymore. But he wrote a very good poem about um, the sinking of a ship uh, off the coast of South Africa. And it's where the, the line really women and children first, the idea that uh, those who are well and, and fit and able might step back and allow those more vulnerable to su survive them in a disaster. Uh, one of the first times it's thought about is the sinking of this ship when the soldiers on the left stepped back and died, allowing women and children to go into the lifeboats. And Kipling's poem is very nicely written about this. Um, and obviously it's part of an empire story that we don't really talk about now, but the concept is there. And I think we have a big worry that traditional pandemic ethics tend to talk about survival of the fittest and those who will do best in the future coming out of ICU. And we are very concerned about an erosion of the Birkenhead drill type thing because women also are doing less well from the pandemic in terms of some of the issues they face. We have seen domestic abuse increase, women's jobs, whatever you think about that term, are the ones that are suffering more than traditional male jobs. And I think the, the issue we particularly are concerned about, of course, is children ourselves. But I think women and children are going to be the victims and young people particularly of um, a society that was poorly prepared 
and is trying to get its head back above water for this pandemic. So some of the ideas there about what happened in our own hospital, some of our ideas about speaking out in terms of these bigger issues, but I don't think we've even begun to see the effects of this pandemic. No reversal. Thanks. Uh, wow, Joe, <laughs> that was a broad brush. And again, give us enormous amount to think about. We're going to now, I guess, focus in a bit more specifically on um, some details about what was happening at Great Ormond Street, but already in the chat, there's lots of discussion of those bigger issues. So Sarah, I'll hand over to you now to talk about the rapid ethics review that came through Great Ormond Street Clinical Ethics Service. So um, I'm going to describe how bioethics were involved in the pandemic between January and May and obviously January was just preceding this. We went through a very very busy period at the peak of this around March um, and first of all I'm going to talk to you about the COVID-19 related cases and then just give you a quick slide of, of the normal work that we were still doing. So um, I'm going to focus on innovative treatment because this was really one of our major roles actually in terms of thinking about treatments for children with COVID who were very sick and we regard this as any newly introduced treatment or modification to existing therapy with unproven efficacy and side effect profile being used in the best interests of the patient on the, an experimental or compassionate basis. So we use this framework published by Joe and Vic Larcher to look at um, experimental or innovative treatments for children um, when we have cases referred. So first of all, we're looking at defined clinical needs. We're examining if there's a clear scientific basis. We're looking at how the patient may or may not benefit. We feel there should be an in-team consensus regarding the patient's best interests. There should be an absence of reasonable alternatives and importantly, fully informed consent from the family and young person. There's also an important consideration of resource allocation and whether this is going to require extra resources and finally, there should be a commitment to outcome reporting to provide benefits for future patients. So just to summarise, um, the ethical questions arising in relation to innovative treatment in the pandemic were actually somewhat unexpected. Joe mentioned it had been looked at, but actually the body of our work was focused around this. And this experience really highlighted to us the importance of the bioethics team working closely with the clinical teams um, and having that close dialogue. And it also demonstrated that we could respond very rapidly within hours. We did this also about over a bank holiday weekend. Um, telemedicine has really facilitated the ethics process for the team. Um, and importantly, we need to think about how to optimally include parents in this process. Um, but we are continuing to run our cases uh, by telemedicine at the moment and parents are joining these. And um, as we can all see, the pandemic impacts on the ethical consideration and patient management in relation to access to treatment and resource allocation. That was Dr Joe Briley, Dr Sarah Eilert and Professor David Archard discussing the ethics of innovative therapy for COVID-19. The National Children's Bioethics Conference is brought to you by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. The conference was supported by the generous donations of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre. If you enjoyed the podcast or the conference, Please support our work by joining the Friends. The podcast was produced by Creative Services at Royal Children's Hospital. If you would like to know more about the Children's Bioethics Centre or join us in 2021 for our 13th National Children's Bioethics Conference, 
look us up on the website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired.